You know, there's this old saying, unions, the folks who brought you the weekend. I mean, for decades and decades, unions did struggle for a shorter working day. There was this famous saying, eight hours for what we will, eight hours to work, eight hours to sleep. And, and that dates back to the 19th century. And of course, it isn't really achieved until the 1930s. And even then, not for everybody. Imagine a world in which there were zero protections for you as a worker. If you got sick, you could be fired. If you grow too weak or old to work in the mines, you're fired, and there are other workers to take your place. While workers today frequently still find themselves in precarious positions, many of the protections we can be thankful for these days, we can ascribe to unions. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Ruth Milkman is the chair of the Labor Studies Department of the City University of New York. She's a renowned sociologist whose work has primarily focused on labor and labor movements in the United States. And she's the author of a number of great books, including Farewell to the Factory, Auto Workers in the Late 20th Century, and more recently, Immigration Matters, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, and on Gender, Labor, and Inequality. Ruth, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I, I always like to start out with just kind of a, a level set. And, and so with that in mind, can you tell us what, what is a labor union? You hear that word a lot, but what does it mean? Well, it can take a lot of different forms, actually. But basically, the idea is a collective organization of workers. And that could be workers in one workplace or it could be workers in an industry some labor organizations in the past dreamed of one big union for everybody. You know, there's no rules and regulations exactly about what the boundaries are, but it's basically an organization of working people employed by capitalists. And when you hear trade union versus labor union, same thing effectively? Basically, that the term trade union is from another era. You don't hear it so much anymore. And it kind of dates back to the days when most unions were organized on the basis of occupation. So for example, there were carpenters, well, there still are carpenters unions, or actually less well-known waitresses unions or miners unions. So there the term trade gets used nowadays. Most unions have members from a variety of types of work. And so maybe partly for that reason, that term has kind of faded. And so when you think about a labor union, and as you've studied them over the years, how would you distill the, the core function of a labor union? What's it really designed to do? Well, the basic concept is that workers have more power if they band together than if they're isolated as individuals vis-a-vis -vis employers. So that's the idea. So they are designed to improve the situation of working people through some kind of collective bargaining and or collective action, which could include a strike or other, you know, withholding labor in some other way, like a slowdown. That's basically the idea, is to, to kind of rectify the imbalance in power between employers and workers, which now unions completely rectify. But the basic concept is, if we do this together, if we all unite and then, as a group, approach the employer to try to improve our situation, 
we'll be a lot better off than if we try to each do it individually. So that's the basic idea. And let's get some historical context then, because that, that makes a lot of sense. But, and when you look back, certainly into the Industrial Revolution, before the Industrial Revolution, all the way to the colonies, I mean, it's, it's common you read about the horrendous conditions in the coal mines and in the factories, and people could have limbs injured and, and they could die in collapses in, in the mines. And there, there weren't many protections back then. But when you go back to the early colonial days, early America, when do you think of the first unions really having started? What, what was the, the foundation for that movement in the U.S.? So it isn't really in the colonial period, but more in the 19th century when you start to see the emergence of unions. Um, one of the famous examples is in the textile mills in New England, especially Lowell, Massachusetts, is a famous case of the so-called Lowell Mill Girls. They were all female, mostly farmers' daughters who worked in those mills and did organize collectively in some ways. They had some famous strikes and so on. In the colonial period, um, apart from slavery, which we shouldn't forget, but there wasn't much possibility of organizing unions among slaves in that period or later for that matter. But most working people were involved in what some people call petty commodity production. That is, they lived in um, a household and the household and the workplace were one. So usually that was some kind of farming operation, but it could also be producing, you know, some more specialized item than food, including clothing. But it was, there was very little employment in the modern sense of the term in that period. So that doesn't really start until the 19th century. And it doesn't really take off until after the Civil War, when the United States first develops large corporations. So as corporations grow, so do unions. And the, you know, the, the railroads unify the country and make national organizing possible. Before that, there are a bunch of local efforts at collective organizing among workers, but they tend to be short-lived and small-scale. So it's kind of a post-1865 thing, mostly. And so was the really the necessary precursor, it sounds like, was having a lot of people in one place being employed to do something. Is that fair? Yeah. If you work with your brothers and sisters in one household, you're not, I mean, I guess you could have a union against the parents or something, but yeah, <laughs> it's not a very likely proposition. But once you start seeing people gathered together in, in this case, a textile mill, which was the first major capitalist industry in the U.S., as it was in other countries mostly too, that's when this becomes a real possibility. And it, it tends to emerge spontaneously almost. Like it's kind of obvious if you work in a place like that, that it would be a good idea to get together with your, in this case, sister workers and figure out some way to, you know, be helpful to one another. And that can take a lot of different forms, but one of them is labor organizing. And so it's, it's really this transition from employment being kind of a family operation most of the time. And I, to your point, we should say paid employment because you, you, you can't ignore slavery in the early days of, of America for sure. But as you look at paid employment, you're transitioning from the family kind of being more or less the company in a lot of cases into a big company employing a lot of people and you start to see some labor unions sprout up. And the family isn't really an employment setting exactly. Like it's more that the family members cooperate in various ways to produce goods that then they sell in the marketplace. So they're not being paid wages. It's more, you know, and actually the early unions, this doesn't really apply to the mill girls, but in the post-Civil War period, the first, the most powerful unions in those days were skilled workers unions. So they had 
a skill that the employer depended on, and that gave them power to negotiate. And, and what's a common example of a skilled worker in that context? A metal worker or a, it could be a carpenter or something like that. Someone who made things and had a skill that like the 21st century equivalent would be someone who knows how to fix a computer or something. We all depend on those people. And so that gives them some leverage vis you know, in terms of negotiating wages or whatever. But in the 19th century, for craft workers, as they called themselves, artisans of various kinds, they didn't actually think of themselves as employees exactly. Because how it worked typically was that you had this skill and you would charge a price for your services. Kind of the way somebody who maybe does plumbing in um, private homes does today. Like how we might think of a contract laborer or something like that. Well, it's not exactly that either. It's more like a self-employed person. Okay. So they, they have this skill and they have a rate that they charge. And if you don't want to pay it, that's fine. But then they're not going to work for you. And so now that, that happens still today in an individual basis with self-employed people. But in those days, the first skilled workers unions involved a bunch of people with the same skill banding together and agreeing that they would not work for yet less than XY price. They called it prices, not wages. And so then if the employer wanted to hire them to fabricate metal parts for something or another, um, the deal was if you were in the union, you would only do that if they paid you a certain amount per part. It could be per piece or per hour or whatever. And so that was the concept. So you were employed by them ultimately, but it was more like, you know, negotiated deal. And it was, again, they thought in terms of prices more than wages. Now that changes later. So is that the form that trade unions took immediately post-Civil War, largely? Yeah, among skilled workers. So the low mill girls is completely different. That's um, a factory situation where the the jobs, I mean, there is skill involved, but it's not that kind of skill that the employer, I mean, you can learn it pretty quickly, et cetera. So that's, to, that's more of like an industrial union it came to be called later. But the craft unions that involved skilled workers mostly functioned like that. So, and that those are the, in the late 19th century, they're the most powerful unions. Again, because they, they're not easily replaced, those workers. And so what was it about the post-Civil War era, the, the 1860s, 70s, 80s? What was it about that historical moment that, what catalyzed the formation of, of these unions where there really hadn't been any prior or not as many prior? Yeah, well, there's a lot of debate about that. But I, in essence, I think the way I look at it anyway is they were nostalgic for the pre-industrial age when they could make things in the household setting and they had much more control over everything than when they worked for a large employer of some kind or a corporation. And so the idea was that they didn't, sometimes people use the term wage slaves. They did not want to be wage slaves. They wanted autonomy and, and independence. And, and, but the theory of power and of organizing in those days, very different from today, was that you were not easily replaced, that that's what gave you leverage. And what that meant was not just have, you know, developing a skill, but controlling the supply of people who had that skill. So if you were a blacksmith, say, you wouldn't want there to be too many blacksmiths because that would cheapen the price that you could charge for your work. So one of the things these organizations did, besides negotiating terms with whoever employed them, was to try to restrict and control the supply of people who had the craft. And so that's where you start to get apprenticeships and 
that kind of stuff. Again, in the skilled jobs. But, you know, as capitalism develops, employers catch on to the their dependence on skill, and they increasingly try to break down skilled jobs into less skilled jobs. Sometimes it's called de-skilling. And so that's a big threat to this kind of union. But And eventually it happens. And, and does that pick up in earnest in the early 1900s with, say, the assembly line as you're breaking down manufacturing into smaller and smaller pieces? Exactly. It starts even earlier, but that's when you really see, you know, Henry Ford's the most famous right. example with the Highland Park plant. So in the automobile industry, but there's, it's actually beginning before that. And this is very threatening to the craft unions, obviously, because it threatens to undermine their power. So they resist this sometimes successfully, mostly over the long run, not so successfully. And, um, and as skill is eroded more and more, that idea of unionism becomes a lot less viable and increasingly workers turn to what we now call industrial unions, meaning Instead of organizing only the skilled workers, you organize whoever the boss hires and try to unify them. So that would apply more to like a factory setting or a mine. So then your theory of power is about unity among whoever's employed in a particular place, not the power of skill. Does that make sense? It does. And so in the in the late 1800s, it, it sounds like this, this exclusionary piece where you have uh, unions that have come together that are skilled labor that that are actually restricting the supply of their labor to some extent, then also negotiating with their 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 employers, so to speak, for for prices as opposed to wages. That starts to evolve into more of a, a union as we think of it today, an industrial union. And I'm guessing is that around the turn of the century, around 1900, where you're starting to see that? It's kind of a gradual process. It's like there is this fame. Well. Before we get into the timing, let me just mention one other aspect of this that's interesting because you used the word exclusion, and that's an important dimension of this because it's not just exclusion in general. It's exclusion often of people of color, women, certain kinds of immigrants, especially Chinese immigrants, Like so that it becomes um, inflected with racism and other kinds of isms um, very early on. And so that's they get a bad reputation pretty early in that regard the craft unions do. But as early as the 1880s, there are industrial unions that begin to form. The most famous example is this short-lived but very large-scale at the time organization called the Knights, as in with a K, K K-N-I-G-H-T-S, of labor, which flourishes really not for very long, but in the 1880s, and then it kind of collapses. And their thing was organizing across the boundary of skilled and unskilled workers, because already there was a lot of need for organizing the unskilled, which no one else was really doing much at the time. And so they, that's what they were all about. And they accepted in, in membership, in, in strong contrast to the craft union exclusionism that we were just talking about, they kind of accepted everybody. You didn't even have to be employed. For example, housewives were part of the Knights of Labor. The only people they excluded were lawyers bankers and liquor salespeople. <laughs> those those poor liquor salespeople could never catch a break. <laughs> well, those were like the evils of the day, right? Right, so they, right. So, so um, and the banking thing and lawyer, you know, is th- those are both occupations associated with the emergence of large corporations, which is happening then. Liquor is another thing, but, but um, so that's the animus against them is, a, a, again, a sort of backward looking nostalgia for how things were before. And, that you know, people are not happy about the or emergence of these big companies that are taking over more and more of the economy. So anyway, they were pretty successful for a short time, but then they, they kind of fall apart. 
The one exclusionary piece that they did embrace, sadly, was Chinese exclusion, which actually the first big immigrant exclusion legislation was in 1882, right around when they were taking off as an organization. And that was the Chinese Exclusion Act. So that's the kind of scar on that history. But other than that, they were very inclusive. It's interesting how you have these labor union movements that are both born out of some nostalgia for the past, the craft union, and then moving into the industrial union era. They're both progressive in in our kind of modern sense, the word progressive, and also they're nostalgic. They're looking backwards. That's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. it's. I'm not sure it's as true in the 20th century, the backward looking thing, but definitely in the 19th. And then eventually it becomes obvious that this isn't going to happen. You're not going to get the old you know, regime back again. And so better to focus on how to you know, get a piece of the pie in the new order that has emerged. But yeah, in the 19th century, when this is all just first developing, you can remember what it was like before. So it's sort of more viable to imagine restoration. And so you just you kind of alluded to this this moment when the cat was well and truly out of the bag, when it became clear that the the good old days, so to speak, weren't coming back. When, when you look at this period in, into the 1900s as well, what era do you point to as when the labor unions and particularly the industrial labor unions really started to get traction? When, when was that golden age? It's really not until the 1930s, but there are lots of attempts before that. You mentioned the you know, the Mine Workers Union, for example. That was an industrial union very early, and by the way, one that included lots of African Americans from an early time, from as far back as it goes almost. And by 1909, 1910, around then, you start to see the emergence of industrial unions in the clothing industry, garments, they called it then. We don't have that industry much in the U.S. anymore, but at that time, it was one of the biggest ones. And um, the workers were mostly immigrant women. First, the craft, the skilled workers, the cutters and people like that who were men organized unions, but then they began to develop actually through a big strike in in my city, New York in 1909, 1910, um, that is transformed into an industrial union. Anyway, there are others. And then there's uh, sort of like the Knights of Labor, you get this, or the flourishing mostly around World War One of the IWW, the industrial workers of the world who were a little bit like the Knights and that they were the ones who dreamed of one big union for all workers but they didn't really believe in bureaucracy or permanent organization or even contracts between employers and workers. And so that made them a little difficult to sustain, especially in the 1920s when there's this backlash against unions. Unions become very strong during World War I, partly because there's a labor shortage, just like today. Well, anyway, it's a little different from today in many ways, obviously, but, but there's some parallels. And and then there's in the 20s, there's a huge backlash also inspired by the Russian Revolution of 1917. What was some of that just a, a patriotic backlash coming in out of the war against unions? It's sort of the first red scare because the red being, being communist. So it's, you know, 1917 is when the Russian Revolution happened. And there were lots of Russian immigrants, mostly Jewish Russian immigrants in the United States. Some of them were involved in the labor movement. And so there's this anti-Bolshevik thing. And I, I take it labor unions are lumped in with the Bolsheviks and so forth, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Classic move in the early 1900s. <laughs> yeah, and also the the labor shortage of the war is over, and you know when the war ends in 1919. So anyway, fast forward another 10 years into 1929, the big crash of the stock market and the ensuing Great Depression that we all know about, and out of that period, you see the birth of industrial unionism that actually sticks. 
and it takes the form of something called the CIO, which everybody listening, I'm sure, has heard of the AFL-CIO. So right. the AFL, which stands for American Federation of Labor, dates back to the 1880s. And so that was a federation. It wasn't a union. It was a group of unions who kind of had a club. And they existed in, well, they still exist in a way, but until 1955, when the AFL and the CIO merge into today's AFL-CIO. So the CIO forms originally, it stands for Congress of Industrial Organization, but it started as a committee on industrial organization. You see the connection here to industrial unions in 1935. And then the AFL kicks them out and they become an independent union federation, Congress, they call themselves. And that's when they really take off in the late 1930s and um, during World War II, partly because of the New Deal and the legislation that is passed under Franklin Delano Roosevelt that gives unions new rights. Most famously, the still a law of the land, although observed in the breach in many ways more than the observance, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, sometimes called the Wagner Act after Senator Wagner, who sponsored it. So that is the first time in U.S. history when unions are given official legitimacy by the United States government to represent workers and bargain collectively. Before that, there are unions, but they don't have that status. They don't have the, the federal backing, so to speak. And Looking in the, the 1920s, you have the Roaring Twenties, then you have the, the big crash, the Great Depression in the 30s. I'm guessing here, but I'm curious, if you had you know a restriction in labor that gave labor more power during the World War I era, then, then unions wane somewhat. When you're in the Great Depression and, and unions start to get more uh, a currency again. Is that born out of something different? Oh, yeah. If there's no labor shortage in the Great Depression. Quite the opposite. It's just everybody was really struggling and coming together to help. Is that the idea? Well, yeah. And also there's massive unemployment and a lot of economic desperation. People are just trying to do whatever they can. And people are a little bit like today among people in your generation, I guess. There's a lot of critique of capitalism and, you know, because it's what's brought people the Great Depression. It's like this huge crisis economically. The system is not working. You could make a similar argument now in 2022, I suppose, in some ways. But but anyway, but except now we do have a labor shortage. There they had a huge surplus of unemployed people who were desperate for work. So that creates a kind of political setting in which, well, that's why we got the New Deal. It's, a, it's obviously a complicated history, but the law that I mentioned that was passed in 1935 is in some ways a response to a wave of strikes in 33 and 34 that are very disruptive to the economy. And the more farsighted politicians decide that maybe what they need is a systematic approach to union recognition and collective bargaining that will create some order out of the chaos that has been created by these strikes. So there's a lot of debate about that. That's the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. Is that right? Mm -hmm. It's sometimes called the Magna Carta Carter of unionism. Got Again, it. there were plenty of unions the first century before that, but they get much more stability once that law is passed. But they also become more bureaucratic. And, you know, that creates other problems that, you know, I think most of people today are well aware of. But that law really does facilitate growth. And then the depression really doesn't end until World War II. Right. The U.S. enters World War II, as you know, in, on, after Pearl Harbor is attacked in, the, in late 1941. But already the U.S. is becoming 
a producer of war material for the because the war is already happening in Europe, starting in 1939 when Germany invades Poland. So the economy revives somewhat already then, and then it really takes off after Pearl Harbor. And once again, we have a huge labor shortage, and that empowers labor organizing as well. And then it's complicated. There are all kinds of wartime legal arrangements that also facilitate union growth. So it, it grows explosively during the war. And although the unionization rate doesn't really peak until the mid-1950s, when a third of all U.S. workers are union members, compared to, well, in the private sector today, only 6% is quite different. So, but that's kind of the legacy of the 30s and 40s. There's a book called Labor's Giant Step, which is about that period. You know, that's like the big surge. And one thing that you know, is really relevant to what's happening right now in terms of, you know, all the new organizing we're seeing at places like Starbucks and Trader Joe's and whatnot. That so far, this may change in the coming years, but it's on a pretty small scale. What we know about from this history is that big increases in unionization come in waves, not incrementally one Starbucks at a time, so to speak. And so maybe this is the beginning of such a wave, but so far it's quite modest in terms of the numbers of workers involved. Whereas in those days, you're talking about an enormous upsurge and big numbers. There's an interesting parallel. I had a conversation with a professor at Cornell named Lewis Hyman about consumer debt. And one of the places where you can really point to it, where consumer debt exploded was when the federal government came in and gave a guarantee on mortgages via Fannie Mae and, and so forth. And that was around the same time. And so drawing a parallel there, is it fair to say that the, the golden age of unions in the U.S. came about in large part because of that federal guarantee, so to speak, the federal enshrinement of your ability to unionize in the 30s? Well, that certainly helped. Again, there's a kind of a debate, a chicken and an egg question of whether it was the strikes that preceded the, in, the law being passed that are the key to understanding the upsurge, or is it the law itself? I kind of think it's both. They sort of fed upon one another, but it's hard to pinpoint that exactly. Um, but there's no question that that legislation helped. You know, in general, this was a period coming out of the Depression, you know, we still call it the New Deal, when inequality, which had been as stark as it is today in the pre-Depression years, as a result of all these things, the National Labor Relations Act, as well as the, you know, other protections that were introduced in the course of the New Deal, leads to a huge compression in inequality. It's sometimes called the Great Compression. And that lasts until roughly the 1970s, after which we begin to see the resurgence of massive inequality to the point where today it's just as bad as it was a century ago. But And unions are a big part of that because they do negotiate, you know, better pay and ben eventually benefits, health insurance and all the rest of it for working people. And that was not as viable before. I mean, there were, again, there were unions before for some workers, but a much smaller part of the workforce benefited. And, you know, you also get in 1938, the Congress passes the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the first federal minimum wage law. There were some in a few states prior to that. But so that also puts a floor under workers, right? So there's a whole series of regulations, you could call them, in a lot of different parts of the economy, from labor relations to wage rates to occupational protections of various kinds, you know, that come out of the New Deal and endure for a good four decades. And so what Lewis Hyman told you about is one piece of that also. 
So I wanted to turn now for, for the kind of this middle section and bring together the historical underpinning with, with some of the modern implications. And one of the things you touched on was the AFL-CIO, which is, is certainly the most common way I experience unions. When you read the news, you see the AFL-CIO referenced or quoted quite often. How do unions function these days in the U.S.? You mentioned the AFL-CIO as kind of a Congress, an umbrella organization, but what is the structure? What's the helpful way to understand how they work? Well, so there are many different kinds of units. So like you said, the AFL-CIO is a group of unions. There's a little over 50 of them right now. There have been a bunch of union mergers over the years, so there used to be a bigger number. Also, some unions back in 2005, I believe it was, left the AFL-CIO and formed a rival federation called Change to Win. Some of them have gone back into the AFL-CIO. So not all unions are part of the AFL-CIO, but most of them are. And it does tend to be the group like in Washington, D.C. that, you know, people look to when they're looking for trying to understand labor's position on some public policy question or, you know, stuff like that. But what's interesting about it, and this became really clear when the um, change to win unions broke away, is that the AFL-CIO leadership, they don't really have any ability to enforce their preferences on the affiliated unions. So, for example, in the late 1990s, the president of the AFL-CIO was this guy called John Sweeney. And he had this idea that what unions really needed to do, because already union membership was declining very rapidly in that period, that they needed to focus on organizing the unorganized workforce. And he said, you know, we should put 30% of our budgets into organizing the unorganized. And a few unions did that, but he had no power to make the rest of them do it. That's actually part of what led to the breakaway of the change to win unions. It's a whole complicated saga. But anyway, that's the point. It's a federation. So then there's tons of individual, well, 50 or so individual unions that are affiliated with it and a few more that aren't. And they kind of all do their own thing. And some of them are still craft unions from what we were talking about that date back to the 1880s or so. Most of them still have the word brotherhood in their names, like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is one example, which represents electrical workers in construction, for example. So some of them survived from that. Some of the unions that emerged in the 30s, like the United Auto Workers was at the time the largest one, not so much anymore because it's the industry has, you know, some of it has left the country and anyway, lots of other reasons. But those continue. And then there are other unions that have, you know, flourished in the so-called post-industrial era when manufacturing is less central to the economy. Some of which do date back to the AFL pre-CIO days. Like the one of the big ones is the Service Employees International Union, which is not in the AFL CIO right now. They were one of the leaders of the Change to Win thing, but um, as the name implies, they represent service workers. But it used to be called the BSEIU. The B stood for Building. Was founded in the 1920s out of a bunch of janitors' unions that cleaned commercial buildings and apartment buildings in big cities. And then went on to do lots of other organizing in healthcare and in public sector as well. It's, you know, it's become a mammoth organization. But as you can imagine, with the de-skilling on the one side, which kind of decimated the craft unions little by little, as we already discussed, and then later de-industrialization, which kind of pulled the rug out from under a lot of the CIO unions, you've got, you know, a different group of unions that are more that are the largest ones and more central and another huge group are the public sector unions that represent government workers 
And how does public sector unionization, I, I know government workers are unionized at a much higher rate than the private sector overall, but how do those unions differ from private sector unions? Well, one big difference is that they are not part of the system created in 1935 by the National Labor Relations Act. Instead, well, it's complicated, but most of them are governed by state laws. So starting in 1959 with Wisconsin, and then later it spreads around mostly just the North and West, not so much the South. A lot of states, especially the most unionized states, begin passing collective bargaining laws for their public sector workers. And so it varies from state to state. So for example, here in New York, that happens pretty early, but to this day, New York state public sector workers do not have the right to strike legally. They sometimes strike anyway, but it's illegal. In California, the other huge state in this group, they do have the right to strike. So there's a lot of variation Although all these laws are kind of modeled after the National Labor Relations Act, there's a lot of tweaks and different bells and whistles that affect them. But the biggest difference between public sector workers and private sector workers in terms of how um, the unions fare, and the reason why as private sector unionism has been ratcheted down, 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 the public sector workers mostly haven't, is that there's much less employer resistance to unionism in the public sector. Nobody's making a buck off of teachers, right? Like it's, I mean, there are tax dollars involved, obviously, but it's a completely different kind of situation. And so you haven't asked me this yet, but in terms of the reasons for the decline that's happened since the 1970s, a lot of it is employer-driven attacks on organized labor. And you just don't have that same impulse from governments. It doesn't really happen. I mean, there's not zero resistance, but it's much, much more limited in the public sector. So those unions have, once they took off in the 60s and 70s, have pretty much maintained their power to the point where, oh, I don't know the exact number, but it's roughly 30% of all union members in the United States today are teachers in public schools. So that was not true in 1950, say, where it was mostly factory workers that were at the core. And when you look at the AFL-CIO, is that purely private sector, no governmental overlap? No. So for example, one of the huge public sector unions the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME as it's sometimes called, is an AFL-CIO affiliate. So, and then a lot of the other unions that are, well, like the UAW now represents some public sector workers. Um, the Teamsters do so. I mean, unions that are lo- losing um, ground in their traditional jurisdictions, many of them have moved into public sector organizing co- because it's a little easier. So broadly speaking, then, across both public and private sector unions, you have this loose confederation of various trade unions that all roll up into the AFL-CIO, or what was it called? Choose to win? Change to win, or some other just independent. Oh, and there is one other thing. There's another law that governs um, railroads. We just had um, a close call with almost having a railway strike. You may have read in the news recently. That was just barely averted from what I read. Yeah. And so there's another law that was passed in 1926 that's called the Railway Labor Act. And it doesn't just govern railways, which are still an important part of the economy, but also airlines. So that's a whole, it has slightly different content. You know, after the Civil War is when the national railroad system is built and it's, you know, the lifeblood of the economy for a long time. I guess later automobiles and airplanes take off. Well, in the automobile case, you know, we don't have drivers are not organized in any union kind of formation. I can attest to that. (laughs) But airline workers are, although interestingly, it's more of a craft union model. So the pilots have their union. There's actually a couple of them and the flight attendants have a different one and the machinists represent the baggage handlers, you know, It's not really an industrial union, but it's a very highly unionized sector, and it is governed by that other law. 
I mean, there's a lot of little differences between that and the NLRA, but the biggest one maybe is that the federal government does have the power to intervene if there's a possibility of a strike. And you can see why that would have developed given the, you know, the paralytic effects of a strike in those kind of sectors. So they do occasionally happen, but they're much more likely to be averted, as we just saw. So taking a step back and, and looking at where we are, where, where uh, employees are these days, what, what do you think of as the biggest wins that we can really attribute to unions? What what have their biggest contributions to employees' life been? You know, there's this old saying, a, kind of a cliche now, that unions, the folks who brought you the weekend, I mean, for <laughs> decades and decades, unions did struggle for a shorter working day. There was this famous saying, eight hours for what we will, eight hours to work, eight hours to sleep. And and that dates back to the 19th century. And of course, it isn't really achieved until the 1930s. And even then, not for everybody. But um, the Fair Labor Standards Act of, that I mentioned before, which not only created minimum wages for the first time and not didn't cover everybody, by the way, which is an important thing, but for the workers that were covered by it, it also required that employers pay time and a half for overtime. And so guess what? A lot of them stopped having people work more than eight hours a day because they didn't want to pay that extra money. This is still an issue now. In the private sector, a lot of employers are very careful to not let folks work overtime because they don't want to pay that premium. So so that's one thing that I think is unmistakably a legacy of the labor movement. Another big one, though, is um, pensions, health insurance. Not everybody has those things, but those were things that unions fought for. More recently, paid family leave, which is still not available nationally. But um, I used to live in California, which was the first state to create a paid family leave program. And I sort of had a bird's eye view of that at the time. And the labor movement, they were not alone. It was a whole coalition of organizations that fought for that. But they did a lot of the heavy lifting in the state capital to make that legislation get through. So in general, they're in the business of making workers' lives better. And so sometimes that takes the form of organizing a union, but often it takes the form of fighting for legislation that um, benefits people, whether they're union members or not, like minimum wage legislation, paid leave, which covers all private sector workers in California, for example, and now a dozen other states. Yeah. So things like that. That's what I think is so fascinating in part about the story of unions in the U.S. is so many of the things that we just take for granted, weekends, eight-hour day, time and a half, health insurance, paid leave, all these things that are just kind of obvious features of modern employee life you can attribute to unions. And, and yet, when you look at OECD countries, the US is about 10%, let's call it unionized. At the top of the list is Iceland is almost 91% unionized. I was shocked to read that. And the OECD average is about 16%. So we're, we're, we're six points under the OECD average. So even despite getting weekends from unions, thank you, why is it that the U.S. is is so relatively low on the OECD list of unionization and, and in recent decades has been declining? Why that dichotomy there? Well, part of the way you have to understand that is that the U.S. system, the National Labor Relations Act, what I was talking about before, is completely different from how it works in Europe. I know the OECD includes non-European countries, but just stick with Europe for a while, for a minute. Actually, in Japan, under the U.S. occupation of Japan after World War II, they instituted a system that's much closer to the American one. So that's a little different. But in Western Europe, there is no exclusive representation. So I know we haven't discussed this yet, but how it works here under the in the private sector under the National Labor Relations Act. And we just saw this like at the Amazon Staten Island warehouse that recently 
voted for to unionize and these various Starbucks and other retail places that are doing it now. The national the government supervises an election. The National Labor Relations Board is the name of the government agency that does that. And it's an election of whoever's in the so-called bargaining unit. And if the union wins the election, then everybody who works there is going to be represented by that union, whatever it is. In Amazon's case, it's an independent entity called the Amazon Labor Union. Although they, by the way, Amazon is fighting tooth and nail against this, and they have not even begun collective bargaining of any kind. So, but still, they have been voted in as the representative of those workers, 8,000 some workers. Um, In Europe, it's completely different in Western Europe. So say France, which by the way, has a unionization rate similar to the US, also below 10%. But they have something that's called sectoral bargaining. So there's a bunch of different unions in say the railroad industry or the auto industry there. They tend to have political party allegiances and or um, religious allegiances. So there is, in the old days, there were communist unions and socialist unions and Christian democratic unions and maybe some others. And they all coexist in the same workplaces, but then they get together and negotiate with the employers as a group. So an individual here in the US, if you happen to work at say Walmart, which is 100% non-union, you could be the most fervent union activist in the world, but you're not a union member because you're employed, you know, nobody's ever won an election there. In France, and actually, you know, Germany and Sweden and so on, England is a little different. You can um, choose to join a union as an individual and you can pick the flavor that you like best. If that's socialist, fine. If it's, you know, whatever. And then the collective bargaining takes the form of a meeting between union representatives, all the different ones that are in whatever industry. Employer representatives, again, they're brought together, and a government representative, it's sometimes called tripartite bargaining, and they decide that in the auto industry, the minimum wage will be X number of euros an hour or whatever, and that applies to everyone, even though only maybe 6% are union members, 100%, without, it's, you know, get those benefits. So I don't know if you saw this in the news recently in California, the State legislature just passed a law and Governor Newsom signed it, creating a similar system in the fast food industry, just in California so far, where they're going to have a system similar to that, sectoral bargaining just for that industry. And there's a lot of talk in like labor law circles in this country right now about how that might be a good thing for the United States to adopt since unions in their current form have become so weak. That seems like the, the tripartite setup, that seems like it gives a lot of power to the very small amount of workers who choose to unionize. Now, I, I assume that that delivers great results to everybody, but that, that's a funny setup. It, I, I suppose you'd have what we have, uh, you might call it, I guess, first past the post maybe is the term where you have to have a majority, I'm guessing, vote to unionize and it's, it's all or nothing. It either happens or doesn't here in the U.S., well, unions used to be much stronger in Europe, too, than they are today. So that's, you know, Iceland notwithstanding, that's a whole story in itself. But um, yeah, it's a, well, look, those are also countries that have parliamentary systems of government, unlike our presidential system. So there's all kinds of reasons why it develops differently there. You know, what they have in common is that they are collective organizations of working people that try to win things for working people, right? That's the same. But but the legal structure is completely different. They're not comparing apples and apples when you look at those unionization rates is what I'm saying. 
Right. What is it about the Nordic countries, you know, Iceland and the other ones? Why, why are they so high on the union percentage? Do you have any idea? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, actually, Scandinavia is the best example. Sweden, Norway, those places, Northern Europe, basically. Well, because it's the legacy of social democracy, which we just saw in Sweden, the recent election. It's a lot weaker today than it used to be. But that was a political tendency that believed in unionization. And by the way, it also led to, you know, like the Great Compression in the New Deal period in this country, much less inequality when they were at their height of power, because that's what they were all about. I've had experiences in classrooms as a college teacher where I say to people, you know, look, these things that we dream about are not impossible. They have them in Sweden. And they'll say, oh, that's socialism, the students will say. But it's actually something called social democracy, which is, those are capitalist economies. But for a long time, they were, after World War II, the most powerful political forces were born out of the experience of the traumas of World War II, committed to limiting inequalities, regulating capitalism to do so, and promoting unionism. So that legacy is still around. It's actually gone down some from like 20 years ago, but it's, you know, these things tend to persist for a while, well, you know, maybe not forever. And, and so looking back at the U.S., uh, 60s and 70s, correct me if I'm wrong, the 1960s, 1970s, and when we started to see the trend towards the decline in unionization, is that right? Really the 80s, actually. 80s. I mean, it starts earlier, but it really takes off in the 80s. There's some erosion in the 60s and 70s. Ronald Reagan is the turning point. Okay, yeah. What, what was the catalyst? Why did that happen? Well, it's basically employer opposition getting more stronger and more militant, if you will. But a lot of people see the turning point as 1981 when President Reagan fired the air traffic controllers who had gone on. It was an illegal strike. Federal workers are not permitted to strike legally, though they do it all the time. Well, not all the time, but they have done it many times. And that kind of gave a green light to the private sector to begin become more militant in its opposition to unionism. And it's also a period when there's a lot of deregulation going on. And even before Reagan, under Jimmy Carter's government, there's a lot of that beginning. You know, most people associate it with the mid-1970s, this sort of so-called neoliberal turn, when um, the kind of belief in market fundamentalism begins to spread widely. So Reagan is a kind of extreme version of that, but it's sort of around in the Democratic Party too. And so you get the weakening of the various New Deal laws that we talked about. They're not, they're still on the books, but they're not enforced as well. And there are new laws passed that take away some of what they provided. And um, minimum wage laws are a good example. They're, the federal minimum wage sort of gets stuck at a low level and the cost of living goes up. Anyway, all this weakens unions. And the big thing is that employers go on the rampage. So, for example, strikes, which are often seen as a kind of the most important weapon in the labor arsenal, they kind of stopped dead in the 1980s. Like, if you look at strike numbers, they're actually they peak in the 40s and 50s, but then and then go down a little, just like union density does, unionization rates. But then in the 80s, there's this abrupt fall off. And the reason that is, is that it's legal in the private sector still to this day for employers faced with an economic strike, that is a strike demanding more money or benefits or whatever, to, quote, permanently replace workers who are on strike. And when the strike is settled, if it is, they have no obligation to rehire the strikers. 
So that's actually been the law since the late 1930s. It's not a new law, but it, the employers start utilizing it much more extensively in the 80s. And so most unions figure it's not worth the gamble, like their whole organization can be destroyed by a strike. And as part of that, because there's, there is a surplus of workers, there's, there's not a worker shortage? Not really. I mean, it's more just aggression on the part of the employers and they figure out how to do this and they get away with it. This is also the period where you see the birth of the labor consulting industry, or as it's called inside the labor movement, union busting. So starting in the 80s, that takes off. And, you know, it used to be that employers hired thugs to beat up strikers. Now they hire lawyers to figure out how to manipulate things. The Pinkertons, wasn't it? Weren't they the famous group? Yeah, exactly. That's one That's one of the groups. Sometimes they had their own employees who did stuff who beat people up and sometimes murdered them, actually. I mean, people died for this movement in those days. Now they're subjected to legal manipulations of various kinds to try to weaken the power of unions. And so the strike, I mean, interestingly, I can see why you asked me that question about was it because there was a surplus of labor. There wasn't particularly a surplus But in a period of labor shortage like the present, the permanent replacement option isn't so available to employers. Where are they going to find? Like we had these strikes last October, so-called striketober, some people called it, at John Deere and um, Kellogg Cereal and a few other places. John Deere employs like 10,000 people. So if they have a strike, which they did, they're not going to find 10,000 workers in this labor market. So the workers won quite a bit in that case. But you know, that's not a typical situation in this period. It strikes me that there's this there's this kind of quickly swinging pendulum through the 1800s up to present day where as industrialization starts to happen, you have some power move back to the workers, perhaps, then it swings back. And then as you get into the late 1900s, again, you go from this period of real power sitting with the workers to it really swinging back pretty hard to the employers. And so Looking at wage stagnation, which is a real problem that is carried through from the, let's call it the 70s through to today, do you ascribe a lot of that to the waning power of unions? Absolutely. Yes. And that's been scientifically demonstrated by various researchers. A big chunk of the decompression, if you will, or the expansion of inequality in wages is due to the decline of unions. Not all of it. So, Some people argue that the period between 1935 and 75 is the exceptional one, and the normal life in the United States is one with weak labor organizing. And I think there's something to that. At the same time, the victories that did happen in that 40-year period, some of them have carried forward. So healthcare is a great example, right? Unions won that, then we got Medicaid and Medicare, and people have healthcare. Working people didn't have healthcare in the 19-teens. They do today. I mean, it might not be great and it's, I call it mismanaged care. You know, there's a lot of problems in that industry, obviously, but still people feel entitled to it and often get it much more often than a hundred years ago. So there's like a lasting legacy. And at the same time, it's, I wouldn't even call it a cycle or a pendulum. It's really just that there's this exceptional period of union strength in the private sector anyway. That's like the only time that it really flourishes. Mid-1900s, is that what you're referring to? Well, basically 35 to 75, the passage of the National Labor Relations Act to the mid-70s when market fundamentalism kind of takes off and the employers go on their rampage and so on. Yeah, I interviewed an author named uh, Tom Hartman who who had a line that stuck with me. He, he thinks that the the natural state of capitalism is more akin to the the zone outside of 35 to 70. And we were talking specifically about monopolies, but he thinks, you know, corporate power is the natural state of the affair in in capitalism. That's a common view. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting take. 
So in Europe, they call it the 30 glorious years. That I can't speak French very well, but, but <laughs> Thomas Piketty, who wrote this famous book, Capital in the 21st Century, makes this, a similar claim that there's this brief period, basically in the case of Europe, it's after World War II for 30 years rather than 40. But it's it's the exception, not the norm, but also dominates so much of our collective memory to some extent, because that was so much of what you know modernity came out of was that that period. Well, and human progress too. I right. mean, look, I mean, some people believe in unfettered capitalism as the ideal system, but we know from history that that does create massive inequalities. And unless there's some counterbalance in the form of unions and or government regulation, it spins out of control pretty fast. And I think that's what we're seeing now. And your generation, I don't know how old you are. I'm just looking at you and assuming. You're- I'm a, I'm a millennial. One of those okay, so av- avocado so toast loving millennials, I guess. Well, you guys faced with the consequences of that. And the consequences are much more severe for people who are recent entrants to the labor market than for people my age. I'm 67. So I'm fine. You know, like I'm going to be okay. I have a tenure job, et cetera. Who your age has that? I mean, there are a few people, but it's very limited. And instead, you've been brought up to, you know, believe that if you kind of did what you're supposed to do, go to college, get a degree, and, you know, you're going to get this great job at the other end of it. And a lot of people are finding instead that the job available to them is at Starbucks or the Apple Store or Trader Joe's. So guess what? They're organizing at those places or trying to. So um, that's something we haven't seen for a, a while. And again, I'm not confident that it's really the beginning of something bigger, but there's certainly a consciousness among younger workers that something has to change and a much more radical worldview than we've really seen since the 1960s. Then it wasn't focused on labor so much. I wanted to hit just for for a couple minutes, we, we've talked a lot about the positives. I wanted to hit some of the negatives, if, if, if there are any in your view. And, you know, when you when you see media coverage of unions, a lot of times it, they're covered fairly negatively. You know, see slowdowns in service delivery, oh, my, my train, my flight, whatever is going to be interrupted. Was that media depiction of, of unions similarly somewhat negative in the mid 20th century? Or has that really shifted over time since the 70s? I think in that 40-year exceptional period, there was plenty of anti-union sentiment and anti-union propaganda and media coverage, but partly because, you know, a third of all workers were union members. Everybody got it. Like, this is something that brings certain advantages to ordinary people. And so the legitimacy of unions was much greater than today, where, again, in the private sector, it's down to 6%, which is also how it was 100 years ago, roughly. Actually, it was a little higher. So there's just more receptivity to that negative view. But I think there is another factor which we have to acknowledge, which is that as unions became more permanent organizations after the passage of the Wagner Act and became more bureaucratized and so on, they became vulnerable to not so much what you were saying about public inconvenience or whatever, which is an issue sometimes, but charges of corruption or, you know, that the leaders were kind of far away from the members in terms of their mentality. They they had these kind of cushy positions that weren't necessarily representative of it. Bureaucracy in the worst sense of the word, right? Yeah. Now, we have that in many other sectors in this sure. society, too, obviously. There's plenty of corporate corruption, political corruption. But anyway, unions became part of that whole thing. They became, you know, they became so-called big labor. I don't think you hear that term anymore, but (laughs) now that it's shrunken so much, but (laughs) that was the image, right? And so some of the negative views stem from 
that. And it's real to some extent. Some union officials are out of touch with the rank and file workers. You know, others are much more in touch and much more, you know, providing. I mean, one of my favorite labor leaders at the moment is Sarah Nelson, who is the president of the flight attendants union. She's been incredibly connected to her members and, you know, very active in a, on a lot of fronts. But they're not all like that. And so, you know, that does create an image problem. And also that unions are weaker. They can't deliver the goods quite as well as they did in the good old days. Yeah. So that also weakens their public image. You know, if you're a union member and what's happening is that the employer is successfully extracting concessions from the union and collective bargaining, then you're, you're kind of structurally set up to fail. Yeah. And so then right. you think you might look back nostalgically if you remember them at the good old days when the union had more power. But you see that it's kind of changed in this way that it, you know, they're fighting for lower wages nowadays. Because if you if your health care is cut, that's essentially a wage cut, right? I mean, even without inflation, if you have to pay more in health care premiums and your wages aren't going up in this to the same degree, then you're basically getting less money than you had before. So people see that. And so that doesn't help either. But, you know, the media plays a role, but I don't think it's I think that's more a reflection of what's happening in the society than the cause of it. What criticisms would you level against unions in the U.S. broadly? And I was curious as I was thinking about that, if I asked that slightly differently and I asked what criticisms would you level against unionization? So unions versus unionization. Are there any big criticisms that come to mind when you think about unions and unionization in the U.S.? Well, they are two different things. Like, you know, nobody's perfect. And so some unions have their flaws. I I myself, you're not going to hear a criticism of unionization per se. I think it's a great invention and something that should be promoted. But if you were to interview a mainstream economist, she or he might have a very different view because economists traditionally, not all of them, but many have the view that anything that interferes with the marketplace, which unions do, um, is bad and somehow disruptive. And so they would be opposed to, they would think unions are a negative influence. You know, I don't agree with that, but that view is out there. They're also against any kind of government regulation, including minimum wage laws, include, which happen to be very popular, by the way. So there's debate about all this, but I myself think that, and it's part of why I like documenting what they do, that unions do a lot more good than harm. Final question, Ruth, and I, I always like asking this of my guests uh, because it, I think it just frames things up and, and kind of brings it to present day nicely. But what lesson or, or lessons have you really taken away from your study of labor unions in the U.S. that you think can be applied to today's world and the moment we're living in right now? Well, I think, again, your generation has embraced, has gotten the labor bug kind of, and public support for unions has also increased quite significantly in the in recent years with all the and the pandemic added to that. I, I read we're, we're actually at an all-time high right now of, of yeah, union yeah. support. That's right. So, and yet, I think the lesson of the history that we've been discussing for the last hour is that it's not so easy to win these fights. Employers fight back really hard. And in a way, it's good that young people don't really get it sometimes because then they maybe would be discouraged from making the effort. But these new organizing efforts that we've seen are, you know, they face a very steep climb in terms of really winning benefits. I've been following the Amazon and Starbucks stuff very closely, and it's kind of inspiring for somebody like me who believes in unions to see this happening at the same time. You know, it's not clear if there's ever going to be a collective bargaining agreement at either company because the management is completely opposed to the unions. And so 
we probably need some kind of new legislation to, which isn't happening anytime soon, given this makeup of the U.S. Senate, but or other reforms to make it possible for the the impulse toward more unionization to succeed. And I think that is a big lesson of the history that we've been talking about. That it's kind of good, like I said, that not all the people doing the organizing are aware of that when they begin, or they probably wouldn't try because you know you think, oh, this is hopeless. But um, they are confronting it now. Ruth Milkman, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the time. And again, uh, for all you listening, Ruth Milkman is the chair of the Labor Studies Department at the City University of New York. More information on her and her work is available at www.ruthmilkman.info. Ruth, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the hour. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. I did too. Thanks for having me. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 